This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hi, and welcome to Smarter Lawcast with Hall & Wilcox. My name is Mark Dunphy, and I'm a partner at Hall & Wilcox. In this season, we're looking at what you need to do if you want to set up a company and start business in Australia. Today, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Penny Ford, to talk about Australia's dispute resolution process. What's unique about our process? Should you choose litigation or arbitration? What aspects of our process surprise our overseas clients? And we'll then finish off with some tips. Penny, thanks for joining me. Could we start perhaps with a brief overview of Australia's dispute resolution process? Hi, Mark. Uh, We can. So the focus of my presentation today and the things that we'll address will be the contractual dispute resolution process in Australia, which seems to be the most likely or most relevant one for companies hoping to do new business in Australia. Although we'll discuss some statutory aspects of the dispute resolution system a little bit later in the presentation. So by way of a quick primer, in the Australian court system, we have two uh, layers or two areas that sometimes comes as a surprise for overseas business people. We have a federal system and we have different systems operating in each of the states. So parties can sometimes choose to bring their proceedings either in a federal or Commonwealth court or in a particular state or territory. I'll come back to that a little bit later because it means that parties can sometimes determine through their contracts where they'd like their particular disputes to be resolved. The Australian legal system is pretty sophisticated. We've got high quality judges, very used to working with technology, translators and interpreters. Uh, We can run large scale trials using video link for evidence during times of COVID shutdowns and so on. We have an adversarial system, but witnesses engaged by either party have a primary duty of impartiality. Uh, And that means that as lawyers and also for our clients, we need to be careful with how we manage witnesses and interact with with witnesses to make sure that they're independent. We also commonly have expert conclaves in Australia, which lawyers are not permitted to attend. And the experts can sometimes be asked to produce joint reports for the benefit of the court. Um, I know that that sometimes can take overseas companies by surprise as well, because it's a somewhat unique approach, but it assists the court to reach a correct resolution of a dispute without perhaps the interference of lawyers. Penny, is that something that's done um, often at the, more often than not at the court's instigation, or do the parties agree to to that, to take it out of their hands and put it in the hands of, um, of experts? Mark, more often than not, that it's that is at the court's instigation, Uh, but the parties can contribute to that process by, for example, coming up with a joint list of questions for the experts, which makes sure that all the questions that are relevant to the litigation are covered in the expert conclave. And some of those conclaves can go for days or even weeks. I've uh, had experience in the past of one that went for more than a month. And is the overall benefit saving time and effort for the courts in doing that? That's right. And it's also helpful for the parties because what it does is narrows the issues, works out at an early stage uh, what the parties experts can agree on and essentially brings it down to a list of a narrower list of issues that are in dispute. 
So I see the expert conclave process as a very good thing, uh, although um, it can be challenging to prepare for. Now, Penny, earlier you mentioned that we have uh, two layers to our courts, a federal layer and um, a state or a territory layer. Um, how do parties, if somebody wants to initiate a proceeding, how does somebody um, determine where they might commence their action? In part, it's guided by the nature of the issue. Certain statutory uh, remedies can usually be obtained via the federal court system. For example, in a, an employment law context, commonly um, parties might resort to the federal system. However, in some instances, it's actually determined by the jurisdiction that's agreed by the parties in their contractual arrangements. So, for example, the parties might agree that any dispute which occurs between them is dealt with in, this, in a Supreme Court or a, a particular court in a state. For example, if the parties were to have a mine in Western Australia, it might make sense for the jurisdiction of disputes to be uh, the courts of Western Australia and the governing law too. It's important to distinguish between jurisdiction and governing law. Um, jurisdiction would be the location you'd like the matter to be dealt within and the governing law would be uh, the law of the state in which the matter was determined. Great. So Penny, then does it matter where in Australia a dispute is determined? Sometimes yes. For example, most parties to resources disputes prefer to have the dispute resolved in the, dis in the state where the asset is located. This makes it easier for witnesses to attend hearings, reduces costs. There's an increased local knowledge of the, the working conditions and the work site and so on. However, generally speaking, it doesn't matter where in Australia you commence a proceeding, the judges are all very skilled and you're likely to have the same um, speed of resolution and have access to the same resources for the resolution of the proceeding. Really, it comes down to where you uh, consider is most suited for your particular matter. As I said a little um, moment ago, if, for example, you had a mine located in Western Australia, it might make sense to have that dispute determined in Western Australia so that your witnesses and so on can have ease of access to the courts and vice versa. Great. And Penny, in my experience in acting for um, non-Australian entities uh, in litigation in Australia, the discovery process can be um, surprising um, to them. I wonder if you could walk us through at a high level the typical discovery obligations in Australia? Sure. Uh, discovery is the process whereby parties to a proceeding share information with one another that's relevant to the proceedings. So in very high level overview of discovery, there's an obligation to hand over documents that are relevant to the matters in issue and dispute. And it doesn't matter if those documents are hurtful to a party's case or helpful. We have generally speaking, full disclosure, as long as the documents are relevant to the issues in dispute. Now, each um, state will have rule, particular rules around discovery. And in Australia, there's case law about the scope of a discovery as well. But the general principle is that you provide the other party with documents that are relevant to the dispute so that they can properly prepare for the hearing. Uh, sometimes that can come as a surprise for overseas clients when we explain that we need to hand over documents that are potentially prejudicial. 
Uh, the only perhaps exception to that general rule is the doctrine of privilege, which we have in Australia, and that's legal professional privilege I'm referring to in that context, which means that communications with solicitors for the dominant purpose of providing legal advice or preparing for litigation don't need to be handed over. But we do need to still, certainly in Western Australia, provide a list of privileged communications so that challenges can be made to privileged claims should they be necessary. And certainly here in our courts, privilege challenges are commonplace. And I think that's um, routine across Australia. So we need to be very careful that we're not over claiming and only properly claiming privilege where it applies. So the discovery process can be quite onerous. For example, you can imagine Mark on a large project where there's millions of documents we need to refine those down into a set of truly relevant documents that speak to the issues. That can involve, in some instances, an electronic process where we go through and take, for example, three or four million documents and refine them down to 50,000 documents or so that might be truly relevant to the proceeding. I'm talking here about court proceedings, I should say. In a moment, perhaps we might move on to talk about arbitration. We can talk about some different uh, rules or considerations that apply there, but discovery can be quite onerous and um, it's just something that overseas clients should be aware of. Again, it's also there for both parties' benefits, a bit like the expert process we spoke about earlier. We can also obtain uh, the other side's documents on the same basis, so it can be very helpful to parties seeking to get to the heart of the issues quickly. Right. And Penny, I also find with clients that I advise outside of Australia that um, the court-ordered processes of, um, of of mediation and conciliation can come as a surprise. Mm. Interested in your comments on that. So most overseas clients that I've acted for in the past will be familiar with the concept of settlement conferences, where the parties freely agree to meet to discuss ways of resolving issues. In Australia, we also have a process of a, a well supported process of mediation. And what mediation is, is essentially a settlement conference, but one that is facilitated by an experienced mediator who keeps the parties on track, who sometimes will require the parties to provide mediation position papers, and who will attempt to essentially bring the parties together so that they can reach a, a resolution of a matter that they may not have been able to reach on their own. Now, most Australian superior courts will require the parties to have a go at mediation at least once before the hearing. Uh, I've been involved in matters where parties have been required to mediate six or seven times. Occasionally, parties will also break partway through a mediation if it becomes clear that expert evidence is required, for example, to clarify a particular issue or to perhaps persuade the other side of the significance of a particular issue. So mediation is very common in Australia and very much encouraged. You don't have to do it through the court processes, uh, although the court, in my experience, the court-appointed mediators are very good. If you have a, a specialist issue that you think would benefit from a, a mediator with particular experience, the parties can jointly agree to appoint a mediator themselves and conduct that process outside court and can sometimes report back to court that that mediation has occurred. So we really value the mediation process and encourage the, uh, our clients to mediate along the way 
because it often presents a really cost-effective way to wrap disputes up early before getting into uh, full-blown court proceedings. And again, in my experience, Penny, one of the reasons that parties wish to avail themselves of the mediation process is because of, uh, is to A, to get some certainty and B, often just as importantly to avoid the significant costs that can be involved in litigation and particularly a lengthy um, trial. I wonder, on a comparative basis, could you make some comments on costs in the Australian jurisdictions? Sure. My comments on costs are anecdotal. They're based on comments that have been made to me by clients who've spoken about the comparative costs. My understanding is that Australia, generally speaking, is less expensive and a less expensive place to litigate than, say, the United States. Uh, but it's on par with what companies might expect to find in Asia or even in the UK in terms of costs. Of course, the costs of litigation are dependent on the size of the case, the number of barristers, for example, that might need to be engaged, and the number of experts and the volume of discovery. So uh, it's hard to make generalisations about costs, but generally speaking, the costs of solicitors and counsel are, as I just suggested, relatively inexpensive compared with the US, perhaps on par with the UK and Asia. Terrific. Let's pivot perhaps a bit, uh, Penny. Over the last sort of 30 to 40 years, um, arbitration uh, on a global level has become more commonly used uh, as opposed to the civil courts for all sorts of reasons. I wonder if you'd comment at a high level about the use of arbitration um, in Australia and some observations you have in that regard. So arbitration definitely has grown in popularity and uh, frequency over the last 10 or 20 years, and it's in widespread use in Australia, particularly in the resources sector, oil and gas sector, and in the construction sector, but also commercially, including with general contracting. So parties sometimes choose to have their disputes resolved via arbitration rather than litigation. So a moment ago, Mark, you and I were speaking about features of the Australian litigation system. There, I was referring predominantly to matters that are being dealt with in the Australian court system. Arbitration is a mechanism where parties can agree to resolve their matters or their disputes privately outside the court system. Arbitration is given support in Australian states and territories by legislation, which uh, allows parties to um, enforce arbitral decisions and in very limited circumstances to challenge matters such as jurisdiction and so on. But arbitration is, is very popular in Australia and I would say certainly over the last 10 years has grown in popularity and frequency and it's not uncommon to see arbitration clauses in contract. Is Australia seen as a favourable place for, uh, for parties to arbitrate if there's an international component to a dispute? I think it would be seen as perhaps not as favourable as somewhere like Singapore, Hong Kong or London, where there are large arbitration bars and very experienced arbitrators, particularly in the high value disputes. But Australian parties and, and clients do still arbitrate frequently in Australia. And we have an appointing body, uh, which is very good, which is a kicker. We also commonly make use of international rule sets, such as the UNSA trial rules. So 
it's really just horses for courses in terms of location, but you can certainly include arbitration clauses in Australian contracts. And we have a, a very high quality pool of arbitrators in Australia that we're able to choose from. And many Australian firms are familiar with uh, how to run arbitrations now, increasingly so, again, after the last five to 10 years. It's not uncommon, for example, in Australia to have uh, overseas-based arbitrators, very high-quality arbitrators, but for the proceedings to be uh, conducted in Australia using those arbitrators who might fly in or conduct the arbitral proceedings electronically. We also have a great deal of experience using overseas counsel for the purposes of arbitration. So arbitration truly is international uh, in the sense that it, I don't think it matters at all where you're based. You can run a very high quality arbitration from Australia just as well as you might in uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Paris or London. But it's just those uh, arbitral locations that are perhaps better known because they've been doing it for longer. And Penny, typically um, parties to a contract will turn their mind when the contract is entered as to whether disputes under the, under the contract should be dealt with by arbitration or in the absence of an arbitration, a binding arbitration clause, go to the civil courts. What are some of the factors you take into account in advising clients as to whether they should consider arbitration as the dispute recommended dispute resolution process? Well, first, when, when we're um, advising clients about the front end of contracts and what dispute resolution process should be included, we ask clients what they're trying to achieve. For some clients, confidentiality is really important, and that can be achieved through arbitration in a way that it can't be in Australian courts. In Australian courts, generally speaking, um, I've heard a judge use a phrase that he wants to let the sunshine in. Generally speaking, the courts are conducted very publicly, uh, although some documents can be redacted or kept confidential. Generally speaking, the hearings are quite public. Arbitral hearings are private. Uh, litigation gives a right of appeal right through to the High Court here in Australia. Traditionally, arbitrations are a single hearing that don't usually get appealed. The appeal rights are often very limited, so that can sometimes give greater certainty for parties. Arbitration was I think maybe five or 10 years ago, thought of as a cheaper and more time efficient option than going through the court process. I don't know that that's necessarily true in every case. On a very high stakes or high value arbitration, it can take, in my experience, just as long to go through an arbitral process as it would to go through a court process, particularly noting that Australian courts are often heavily case managed and in many jurisdictions, there's a commercial and managed cases list which can push them through the courts more quickly. So I don't think that the time factor is as important as it once was, nor do I think that the cost factor is as important as it once was. I think the cost of an arbitral proceeding can generally speaking be on par with a court proceeding. Um, one thing about arbitration though that parties sometimes find to be of real value is the ability to appoint arbitrators with specialist expertise. And here I have in mind something like a gas price arbitration where you may wish to appoint arbitrators uh, who've had a lot of experience doing 
gas price arbitration. So, for example, you don't need to start from start from scratch and have to explain what's involved in that. The usual approach, if, for example, you have three arbitrators, is that each party picks one and uh, those two arbitrators pick the chair. I say usual approach. That's a fairly, fairly common arrangement that we see in um, arbitration arrangements. Um, and that can sometimes give parties comfort that they've had input into who will be determining their dispute. Particularly commercial managers, it can reassure them that the people that are just determining their dispute have real knowledge or insight into the particular area that um, the dispute has arisen in. So, Mark, I'd say there's probably eight or ten factors that determine whether you might want to have an arbitration clause versus uh, simply allowing the, the dispute to be resolved through litigation. The other thing we're starting to see in contracts is arrangements for, as you said, a binding expert determination. So the parties agree that they're going to have an independent expert determine their dispute. Um, the other thing I'm also starting to see a little bit of is structured negotiations. So before a party can enter into any kind of formal dispute resolution mechanism, the contracts that I'm seeing, particularly in the resources sector, are providing for very, very structured negotiations, um, which are escalated to senior members of, of the company. They might start with appointed representatives and then escalate to uh, board level negotiations. So all of those things can be factored into contracts, but it really just depends uh, on what parties want to achieve. And we can help clients have a think about all of those issues and weigh them up. And sometimes, Mark, it actually comes down to parties' experience. If they've had a rough experience um, in terms of costs or delays with, for example, a court proceeding in the past or, or a great deal of publicity, they may prefer to go down the arbitration route. Right. Penny, tell me um, in your experience um, about the enforcement of foreign judgments in Australia. Is that something that's commonly done? And to what extent do Australian courts, are, are Australian courts bound by foreign judgments? So the starting point on enforcement of foreign judgments in Australia is that generally speaking, the Australian courts have the power to enforce judgments um, within the Australian legal system. But there are some exceptions to that. Some judgments can be enforced under statute, but only in respect of a limited number of countries. Um, the other approach is to enforce them through common law. And there's been some recent case law about the enforcement of uh, decisions emanating from China. There are some requirements for decisions to be enforced here. The starting point, I would say, is if you've got a foreign judgment you need to seek legal advice about whether it's enforceable in Australia because uh, each judgment will need to be considered on its own merits. Generally speaking, many judgments can be enforced here, but not all. And each judgment will need to be considered carefully in terms of its own context. Great. Maybe in conclusion, Penny, um, could I ask you to make some observations um, about the general importance of dispute resolution clauses in contracts when uh, entities are wanting to do business in Australia or with Australian entities. So, Mark, my quick three quick uh, tips for overseas businesses who want to do businesses in Australia is get advice before you sign the contract as to the best dispute resolution mechanism and what might suit your business and the contracting model. Uh, tip number two would be if you think a dispute is brewing, take care to preserve your records and make sure that 
you give some thought to legal privilege and if you need to take advice about that, uh, take advice from Australian lawyers about what rules might apply. And the third tip is that as Australian lawyers, we're very familiar with working with overseas-based lawyers. So if you have lawyers in a foreign jurisdiction who you trust and rely on and commonly work with, we're very happy to, to work with those lawyers to make sure that um, our advice is properly communicated to you and that we're all working together in your best interest. Well, terrific, Penny. We've covered a lot of territory there uh, with regard to uh, Australia's dispute resolution process. And I hope that um, any listeners, uh, well, I'm confident that any listeners will now be significantly better informed than they were uh, prior to hearing what you've had to say. Uh, so thank you very much for sharing your observations and thoughts and experience with us. I also want to say a big thank you to uh, everybody who's listened to this episode. If you have any questions, please feel free to get in touch with us. You can find at details on our website at paulandwilcox.com.au uh, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Once again, thank you for your time. Mm -hmm.